Welcome to Alternative Fund Insight, exploring the trends and meeting the personalities driving hedge funds and private markets. My name is Will Wainwright, and this week I am joined by John Kaplis, founder of Pivotal Path in New York, to dissect hedge fund performance trends and LP priorities in a higher rate environment. This episode is brought to you in association with the Independent Research Forum, enabling professional investors to access a wide range of high-quality independent research through a diverse group of hand-picked providers. IRF publishes a fortnightly newsletter highlighting the latest original and thought-provoking research. For more information, visit independentresearchforum.com. Now to my interview with John Kaplis of Pivotal Path a leading industry research firm which empowers institutional investors with the ability to conduct the full cycle of hedge fund investment due diligence. I started by asking him about his background in the industry and what led him to set up his firm. First of all, thank you for having me. I worked for three different hedge funds uh, before founding Pivotal Path and uh, started off in the event-driven space um, at a relatively large uh, event-driven manager over a billion dollars. and. Most recently, uh, I was at Campbell, where I ran the or co-ran the risk team and sat on the investment committee. Um, I think another thing that that was important was I also sat on the investment committee of, of charitable endowments. And so, between those two things, I started to see you know a pretty large disconnect between hedge fund investors and the information they had access to. Uh, and the funds themselves that were presenting the investment opportunity. Yeah, so a real information gap. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, coming from the GP side, as you mentioned, it's really given this business a unique view on, you know, how how to bridge the gap, the information gap between allocators and managers. And for some background, you know, we knew that managers or many of them were and, and remain today reluctant to report to databases and where other or other managers and service providers could pour over the data, right? They, they knew that that was going to be an option. And so because of this, we also knew that allocators themselves weren't getting a true picture of performance when they were using these databases across the space. And so um, particularly, there was a bias that better quality managers just weren't providing their information. And this is purely because of the self-reporting element of a lot of databases. Absolutely right. So it's literally a decision to, whether to report or not. Um, and then every month, it's that same decision. And so that just means that, you know, managers are going to report typically when it benefits them. Nothing wrong with that. But it means that the databases are missing, you know, a big part of the industry. And so any benchmarks or indices that are created from incomplete data are just inherently flawed, um, as well as any analysis that's going to be done on it. So you know, we set out in the beginning, this is now over 10 years ago, we set out to change that and, and introduce a level of transparency and comprehensiveness that allocators, as we saw, they, they really ba- badly needed it. And so, you know, fast forward 10 years later to today, uh, our clients are exclusively institutional allocators that collectively represent over $300 billion in combined hedge fund investments. And we're essentially functioning as an investment consultant uh, that's bringing that transparency and tools to help our clients make more informed decisions. 
what's happened over the de last decade is this means that managers not only trust us with their data, but they're actually happy to speak to us, right? They often view us as a partner and, and really a conduit to help get them in front of some of the sector's largest and most influential allocators. And probably most importantly, they know that they're being evaluated within the right context. So let's take a look at hedge fund performance. How does this year compare to last year? We saw winners in macro, multi-strategy, managed futures. How does this year contrast and which strategies have not done so well? So, you know, in many ways, uh, 2023 so far has been a mirror image or, or a reversal of what took place in 2022. And that was probably a bit more pronounced uh, through mid-year, but uh, it's still evident today. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So, you know, firstly, managed futures, uh, as well as global macro, and, and we, we have our own indices to track both of them. Uh, they were a couple of the only bright spots in 2022. And uh, together, they averaged about 15% for the year. Um, in addition to that, our volatility index uh, generated over 9% in 2022. So um, if people remember that year, although they probably don't want to, uh, they remember that there weren't really that many pockets that you could make money. And so, you know, flip that around to 2023, uh, through October, uh, those indices, those three in particular, they really round out the bottom of the leaderboard uh, with our volatility index being the strongest year to date, and, and they're only up two and a half percent. Uh, while the others really kind of hover around flat. So, you know, from that perspective on, you know, what was what were the best performers last year uh, have been some of the worst performers this year. And then conversely, uh, we, we've seen a couple of other things in the equity indices, specifically our sector focused indices uh, that cover technology, media and telecom. Uh, as people remember, they, they were some of the worst performers in 2022, not only as global equity markets fell, but tech in particular got hit extremely hard uh, in the face of stubborn inflation and, and rising interest rates to, that were stifling, trying to stifle it. And so this year, that technology, media, and telecom index uh, is actually up 8.4% a year to date. And that compares to a loss of 22.4% in 2022, uh, which was the poorest performer of all 40 indices that we cover. A key talking point this year is the, the higher for longer rate outlook. Consensus in the market really solidified around that in, in Q3. And that has a big impact on LP expectations. Performance in a zero rate environment is judged very differently to when you can get 5.5%. So I'd just like to talk a bit about those changing expectations um, and also how that can affect hedge fund performance because... Historically, hedge funds or some strategies have performed better in a higher rate environment. Absolutely. And we've done a lot of work on this exact topic. But, you know, just to kind of start from the top, uh, you know, many investors today, they're really unfamiliar with any sustained period of elevated and rising interest rates. And this notion that used to be fundamental to evaluating hedge funds of excess returns, meaning returns beyond the risk-free rate, that became nearly irrelevant uh, and barely a consideration for the last 15 plus years. And so, you know, all of that change started in 2022. And so with rising rates throughout 22 and into 23, and maybe now settling around this five and a half percent mark that you mentioned in the US, um, you know, this is a fundamental input that now becomes extremely relevant to any uh, hedge fund decision or any investment decision, really. And, you know, this is also a return to 
if you take a longer look, a return to a more normalized period of interest rates. And as you mentioned, uh, you know, and our research shows this, and I'll give you a couple of examples, but it's actually favorable to the hedge fund industry at large uh, from a performance perspective. And then when you couple improved performance potential with better liquidity terms, certainly than other private investments, uh, it could create a really compelling opportunity for investors and certainly a tailwind uh, for hedge fund flows. So let's look at the 20 years after 2000 then. Um, so let, and take the three-month treasury bill rate. How has that overlapped with differences in performance? Yeah, so a great question. I mean, back in January, we published a research note um, analyzing just that. We were looking at uh, performance across our indices and looking at it in different risk-free rate regimes. And, and in fact, we use 3% as the threshold to, def, you know, to differentiate between low uh, risk-free rate and high risk-free rate, right? And so between the period of 2000 and 2022, uh, as I mentioned, I mean, that level of the risk-free rate has coincided with large differences in performance. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, as I mentioned, that favors hedge fund performance, especially relative to the S&P and uh, traditional equity markets. And so, you know, some of the highlights would include, and this is something that, you know, pretty straightforward, but oftentimes not thought about this way, that when rates are above 3%, um, you know, the S&P actually generated 7% less uh, than when rates were below 3%. So another way of saying that is that the S&P produced returns annualizing over 9% when rates were below 3% and less than 2.5% when rates were above 3%. Yeah, that is a big difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, you can start, you know, already and, and you, you can walk through it and kind of think about the conventional rhythm around rates. Um, but then you start looking at the hedge fund world and the industry, and um, that's not the result that you get. In fact, uh, our hedge fund composite index uh, not only generated 650 basis points more in the period of high rates, but it also increased its excess return above the risk-free rate. So, while in periods of low rates, it was 7.3% uh, above the risk-free rate. In periods of high rates, it actually improved to 10% beyond that. So um, that's a difference of 270 basis points, meaning that not just uh, absolute returns, but relative returns also increased. What about the multi-strats? Is there a relationship there as well in terms of performance? So th there's actually a relationship in, in a number of uh, across the indices. And so I'll give you a couple more examples, and, and then we can focus specifically on multi-strat. Um, but you know, one of the things that's important is if you look at our managed futures index, you can see that uh, it generated 7.9% on average in low interest rate environments and 11.8% in high interest rate environments. And interestingly, the excess return above the risk-free rate uh, didn't change at all. And so it's really important to think about you know, the various strategies that you know some of the difference in performance are more structural than others and what i mean by that in you know for example in managed futures funds because they are trading predominantly futures and they can actually invest most of their cash in short-term t-bills or money market funds and that's what they actually use as collateral to create their positions and so this actually means that the risk-free rate can essentially flow through directly to investors and you know so think about today what for many years had little effect is now essentially a five percent tailwind or five and a half percent tailwind for managed futures funds um though their excess returns have been pretty consistent you know that's really their trading skill 
in these different environments has been, like I said, relatively consistent. So, um, you know, you really can see the very uh, specific pass through, right? Now, your question around multi-strats, you know, there are other strategies like multi-strat or even volatility, which, um, you know, you see that in higher rate environments, uh, it does increase their returns and their excess returns. And so, you know, that that's something that, you know, at least historically, it starts to suggest that other factors, for example, you know, maybe maybe an increase in volatility that creates a better trading environment, you know, maybe they're at play. It's not just that rising rates are passed directly through, and and in a number of cases, that that's not what happens at all. So, you know, to your point earlier, you know, a higher risk-free rate it really changes the dynamic for investor requirements and, and expectations, and this becomes even more significant when interest rates remain elevated for an extended period of time. And, and while we don't forecast what's going to happen in interest rates, I think it's fair to say that certainly they've been elevated for some time now and uh, the likelihood that they remain uh, at least well above zero for the foreseeable future is probably pretty high. And just to stick with multi-strategy, which has been such a big industry talking point this year, um, it's really interesting to note that the the higher rate environment could be helpful performance-wise, particularly as it's that strategy which performs so well in the zero-rate environment. There's more scrutiny over the fees, over the lockup period, the lack of transparency, etc. What do you make of the debate over multi-strategy in particular? Yeah, I mean, multi-strat is is probably the perfect example of a strategy that's now being judged quite differently by investors than, than just one year ago. And I'll give you some data behind that. Um, so using our index from January of 19 through December of 22, uh, you know, these multi-strats could do no wrong, right? In fact, our, our multi-strat index generated almost 8% per annum on average. And uh, that's with almost 6% of that 8% in the form of pure alpha, at least relative to the S&P. So very uncorrelated returns Clearly, 2022 was a year where uh, equities got hit hard and they were still able to to make money. Um, but when you look at it, you know, they've actually been loved for uh, a number of, of, of additional years, you know, beyond just the last three or four. And so interestingly, if you just take that same simple analysis and extend the look back period three more years. So now let's look at January of 16 through 2022. Uh, the returns annualized just above six percent. And again, much of that is in the form of alpha, but even that number in itself may no longer be sufficient based on investor needs and expectations. And so, you know, what's interesting is for context, our multi-strat index today is up, well, through October is up 3.5%. So let's just say the year ended right here and that's where performance was. That's actually well within one standard deviation of their historical performance. And so what that means is, at least from a statistical standpoint, uh, this year is no different than any of the other of the past eight years. Yet, certainly, uh, you know, investors are going to feel very different about it. And as you pointed to earlier, I mean, now it comes back to if investors can get the same return or slightly better even uh, without lockups, without having to worry about high fees and having to be able to explain that to investment committees and, and clients, um, or any unforeseen risks in the strategy that maybe aren't captured specifically in volatility and sharp ratios. Um, when you take that and you couple it with, uh, you know, you think about what's happened in the multi-strat space over the last number of years, 
There's been a significant increase in assets, especially relative to the rest of the industry. And investors are increasingly, and this is broadly speaking and, and, and generalizing, but feeling fully allocated, not necessarily negative, uh, but less interested in adding to these positions that they had over the last few years. And that risk-free rate really, uh, probably in a nutshell, that is the main reason why. Yeah, that's really interesting. So we might have reached the high point in terms of inflows to multi-strap for the, for the time being, um, but we're not saying there's going to be a big reduction. But what does that mean in terms of the next step for, for multi-strategy? How do they cope when, when flows are flat? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, we don't quite know that to be the case. And, and that's, you know, that's certainly over the last nine months or 10 months of the year, you're seeing investors as the year starts to get closer to end, starting to ask those questions. But, you know, the size and popularity of multi-strats, uh, you know, has increased significantly over the years. I don't think that that's going to go away, barring, you know, some negative event that, that certainly, you know, nobody's expecting. Um, but the question is, how are they going to continue to meet those investor needs, especially as those needs might evolve? And so uh, there's been a lot of talk, and, and, and we've seen it certainly, that there's certainly a war on talent. And um, not only is, is there such a war on talent you know, between these multi-strats, but a lot of them are also expanding uh, into other areas that maybe they hadn't been in, or at least didn't have a significant allocation in the past. And uh, we've seen teams building out commodity allocations and commodity teams, as well as credit strategies that uh, did not dominate the portfolio in years past. And so, you know, why are they doing this? Well, they're doing it to, A, create more capacity, um, especially if, whether flows remain constant or, or, or continue to move higher. Capacity is going to be an issue. And then there's also a question uh, that investors are having about whether multi-strats on average might need to look for additional ways to generate high, those higher returns. And that could come in the form of a number of different forms. One might be uh, additional levels of risk and potentially increasingly obscure stat strategies like, you know, for say, for say regional energy trades. Um, but I think all that being said, you know, many of our allocator clients are still pretty bullish on multi-strat options. Uh, we're actually seeing an emerging trend in looking more at instead of these big, broad multi-strats that, that are, have increasingly more difficult terms or, or are just completely closed, uh, we're looking at, our clients are looking at specialist multi-strats, you know, where they can cluster around maybe a smaller number of strategies like credit or in the future space. And again, kind of look for that new breed of multi-strats that maybe can provide uncorrelated returns that might be even higher than some of the larger players in the space uh, that have done such a great job for so many years. Yeah, interesting. Well, let's talk about another hot topic for the industry at the moment, um, liquidity. How are investors thinking about liquidity at the moment? And this is all uh, against the backdrop of the, the huge flows into private market strategies over the last few years. Um, do you think that the liquid aspect of some hedge fund strategies will prove a big benefit here? You know, uh, it, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, liquidity is one of those things where it's not fully appreciated until you need it. And so, um, you know, we've seen that time and time again. And, you know, while theoretically uh, liquidity is a risk premium, these near zero interest rates for so many years and that coincided with a relatively low volatility, volatility environment, 
you know, it helped fuel a multi-decade growth in private equity. And uh, not that private equity is a substitute for hedge funds, but oftentimes uh, it was to the detriment of allocations in hedge funds. And so, you know, investors, especially in 2022, they were reminded of two things. And the first one is the benefit of diversification, right? So when traditional equity markets uh, fall precipitously, that certainly doesn't bode well for private equity markets, period. Um, the second part is that liquidity, right? And so, uh, you know, people were, were very worried about the liquidity of their private equity portfolios and other portfolios that they might have locked up for a period of time. And so going forward, because that's such a recent memory, uh, at least the investors that we work with, um, they're increasingly going to place a, a premium on liquidity. And that certainly favors not all, but most hedge fund strategies and certainly the industry at large, where you can get diversification, unique returns, and you can have that with, with much better liquidity terms. So you can cash out if need be to meet uh, other areas of your portfolio. Um, that's something that investors are going to covet much more and probably find more valuable in the foreseeable future. Um, well, let's finish with the outlook for 2024. We've talked a lot about the high for longer environment, which seems to be defining everything at the moment. Which strategies look set to be in a good position to thrive? Where are LPs allocating at the moment? Sure. So there haven't been a ton of allocations quite yet, but but I can say where where some of the most significant interest lies uh, from our clients is the distress space. And in some cases, long short credit where they might stress a more distressed component, but really a lot of our clients are looking at uh, the distressed opportunity. And so give you some background on uh, distressed credit. Going back to 2000, uh, distressed has annualized over 11%. And this is getting back to the interest rate. So let, let's separate kind of this high interest rate and low interest rate environment again. Uh, they've annualized over 11% when rates were greater than 3%. And uh, about 8% when rates were less than 3%. So a difference of about 300 basis points per annum. Uh, which is quite important. So, you know, certainly the uh, the level of, of risk-free rate is going to play into the opportunity. Probably uh, more importantly than that is uh, the default rates, right? So um, default rates have been almost non-existent, or I'm talking about corporate default rates uh, in 2021 and even 2022. Um, the S&P now, uh, I think, predicts that default rates are expected to hit 4.5% in the US by the middle of 2024, uh, from about three and a half percent in July of 2023. So rate, default rates have already gone up a little bit. They're expected to continue to go higher. Uh, that being said, there have been a number of false starts in the distress space. In fact, you can go back to 2018 when there was uh, you know, some, some percolating problems in the energy markets that went away. Uh, there was a lot of interest in distress uh, in the middle of 2020, certainly when COVID was rearing its head in the beginning uh, with a lot of the government intervention and, and Fed policy, uh, that went away. And so again, uh, there's been a lot of uh, expectations that the economy would start to shrink, that default rates would increase and it would create this wonderful distressed environment. It has yet to happen. Uh, it's looking much more likely this time around that uh, there will be some significant opportunities. And so what we are seeing are some new launches in the space. 
uh, and we're seeing um, people kind of earmarking capital capital for these future launches. And is there LP appetite for hedge fund launches now? I know a big theme in the last few years has been a preference for established names and scale and, and adding to holdings. Um, what's the appetite like in the startup world? Yeah, I'd say it's still extremely, it, it's a tough go right now. And um, part of this has to do with the multi-strats that we talked about before, right? It used to be that there was a, you know, the calculation from an, an investor, from a manager standpoint was, you know, do I go it alone? Do I have the the wherewithal? Can I raise money right from the beginning and, and launch a new fund? Um, and, you know, when comparing that to joining a pod or joining a multi-strat, uh, the economics historically weren't quite as good. And you knew that if you were really going to make it big, that you would, you'd prefer to launch on your own. And, as the the multi-strats have grown in size, uh, they've also grown in, in what they uh, what compensation packages look like, what signing bonuses look like, and uh, it's actually changed the equation significantly. Where a lot of individual launches uh, actually found it more beneficial to go in house. So it's not that uh, for, that new managers can't launch anymore. It's that you're not necessarily seeing them as these single uh, you know, new fund launches, they're being swallowed up by the, the multi-strats themselves. So what we do see then is, you know, that the launches that do make it, um, and that are on their own and unique to themselves, they tend to be the larger names that are coming out with a big team, significant amount of working capital have earmarked a lot of capital. Uh, so you're seeing some of it, some of that it's fewer and, and f- far between, um, but I think that's part of the significant reason why the, the environment has gotten more difficult. But I, I think the multi-strats are playing a big role in that. And so that's a question of if that starts to change in the future, might a you know individual launches become more popular once again? Uh, that's a question mark, but certainly something to keep an eye on. Interesting. Well, John, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Uh, Will, really appreciate you having me and I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you to John for joining me. If you haven't already, please follow AFI on LinkedIn and sign up to our free newsletter at alternativefundinsights.com, providing an essential weekly update for senior hedge fund industry decision makers. If you are looking for more information about hedge fund launches, performance or other business intelligence, please consider membership. Contact me for sample content or a demo of what AFI offers. That's it for now. Until next time on Alternative Fund Insight.